Father, your word is a treasure trove, where there are treasures that you have placed in your word to profit us so that we will find our joy not in our circumstances but in Jesus Christ. So Father, as we come to this treasure trove to discover for ourselves new truths that your Spirit is speaking to us, Father, we pray that you will take these next few moments, make them your moments, and open our eyes as the psalmist prays that we will see wonderful things in your law. Father, that's our earnest prayer this morning as we come to worship you. Open our eyes to see what the treasures are as far as the kingdom of God is concerned and what are the things that will fade away. Help us to treasure the treasures of the kingdom, to grab them, embrace them, love them, and let us exalt the King and as we come to worship Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Today, an average American owns at least seven pairs of jeans. People in the U.S. spend at least $450,000 a year on jeans alone. But do you know how jeans came about? Well, it was in the late in the 19th century when there were many laborers working in the San Francisco gold mines. And as these laborers were working these gold mines, the pants that the laborers were wearing were often not strong enough for the laborious work that they were involved with. The pockets and the bottom fly were constantly being torn. So one day, one of the wives of the laborers approached a tailor by the name of Jacob Davis. And she was asking Jacob Davis, the tailor, to make for her a pair of trousers that was durable for a husband in working in those mines. Jacob Davis thought for a moment and began to, to, uh, uh, to labor the thought of how to make a pair of pants strong enough to last and durable enough for those miners working in the coal mines. So he found a very tougher uh, fabric that's called denim and he decided to stitch them, these pieces of denim together with bright orange threads. In order to prevent them from tearing, he had these metal rivets that were being placed in areas of strain, like the pocket corners of the pants and the base of the button fly. And so the first pair of jeans was born and became a big hit. Many of the laborers began to order from Jacob Davis. But Jacob Davis was just a little tailor. He did not have the money to manufacture more of these uh, jeans uh, in, in, in large measures. So he immediately thought about a man that he used to buy cloth from. And his name was Levi Strauss. And, be, and he began to work with a, a Levi Strauss, a Levi Strauss. Uh, on how we, he could manufacture these jeans on a larger scale. So on May 20, 1873, the first pair of riveted pants was being made and sold. And they were called jeans because the material that they ordered, the cloth that they ordered, was from a, from a city called Genova. 
So it was called jeans. And they decided to sell it. And they called it Levi's jeans. It was being used under the name of Levi Strauss, the man that was paying for the production. And as the jeans began to be sold, it became, a constant, it became an instant hit. Not only was it bought by the miners, later it became a fashion statement across the world when jeans became and become so popular in our culture. And jeans first was manufactured because they were durable. They were able to stand tough circumstances. Our faith needs to be tough too. We need to, our faith needs to be like these genes, being able to be durable during these tough circumstances. It is one thing to gloriously proclaim the power and the love of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God when things are going well. But what about those tougher circumstances where things don't go our way? Is our faith durable enough during these times? Last Sunday, we were looking at Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 to 22. And we look at how the Jews celebrated the Passover. In the Old Testament, the Passover is a very special occasion. And throughout the narratives of the Old Testament, it's only celebrated seven times. At least we are only told seven times that it's being celebrated. Every time the Passover is celebrated, it's a big deal. It's often celebrated across the turning points of the history of Israel. For instance, it was celebrated at the first time in Exodus chapter 20 when on the night that God led Israel out of Egypt. And then it was celebrated again in Numbers chapter 6 when the Israelites reached Mount Sinai when they received the law of God. It was a turning point in the history of Israel. It was celebrated during the reign of Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And the Passover again is celebrated amongst the better two kings of Judah, King Hezekiah and King Josiah's reigns. And the very last time uh, that, the, that we are told uh, that the Passover was celebrated was in Josiah's time. Before, in the book of Ezra, when we come to the book of Ezra, the very last time it was celebrated was in Josiah's time. And Josiah, King Josiah, celebrated this Passover event and it was a great Passover event where the people celebrated. But the faith of Josiah did not last very long. It's one thing to celebrate the salvation of God when things are going well, but it's another thing to celebrate God's love and sovereignty when things are going bad. Because after, immediately after King Josiah celebrated the Passover, do you remember what happened? King Josiah began to take things into his own hands because politically things were changing. Assyria, the large foreign power during King Josiah's time, was waning its, its power. And Egypt was trying to uh, ally with Assyria one last time to fight against a new world power that was burgeoning, that was coming up. They were called the Neo-Babylonians were coming up. And as these uh, Egyptians try to rally together with the Assyrians to fight this new war power, they have to cross the land of Judah. 
And King Josiah began to take things into his hands. He had just celebrated the Passover. He had just proclaimed across the kingdom of, of Judah that God is the Savior. That that's what the Passover stands for. That God will help his people. But when things got tough, Josiah, instead of relying on God, began to rely upon himself. He decided this is the time to fight against the Egyptians because the Syrians are already waiting in power and the Egyptians are not that strong. So this is a time for him to stand up and fight against the Egyptians. So he engaged himself in battle against the Egyptians. And very sadly, he was shot by an archer while he was on battle with the Pharaoh called Pharaoh Nico. And he was shot and he was brought back to Jerusalem and he died. King Josiah, though he proclaimed the salvation, the sovereignty of God across the Passover, when times got tough, God was not his savior. He depended upon himself to fight the Egyptians. 151 years have passed King Josiah. The Jews have finally returned back to Jerusalem after spending a time away in exile and they celebrate the Passover again. This will be the final time in the Old Testament when the Passover is celebrated. Will they be like Josiah? After celebrating that God is their Savior, will they be like the Josiah and give way when times are tough? Is their faith durable? You see, it's easy for us, let's pause and look at ourselves, to sing songs and exalt the name of Jesus when things are going well. Talk can be deceiving, but do we really trust Jesus as our Savior when things are tough? Is our faith durable? Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached his final sermon on June 7th, 1891. In his final sermon, he gave a very poignant story about a man walking along a street with a dog uh, treading behind him. Spurgeon asked his congregation, how do you know if the, if, the dog, if the man is the owner of the dog? You can never tell if the man is the owner of the, uh, the dog's master as long as they're walking on a straight path. But it's when the man takes a turn that's when you can tell. If the dog follows the man, the man is the master. If the dog doesn't follow the man, and when the man takes a turn, then the man is not the master of the dog. How do you know that Jesus is your master? It's when you take a turn, when there is a corner in your life and you have to take a turn. Will you still follow Jesus? For King Josiah, when things, when life turns a corner, he did not trust God, trusted himself to fight the Egyptians. What about us? What about the Jews here in Nazra? The Jews that just celebrated the Passover, will they be like King Josiah? Will they continue to trust God? After the Jews had celebrated the Passover in Ezra 6, instead of doubting God like Josiah did, we are now told that there is a new leader on the horizon. His name is Ezra. 
Through Ezra, we're going to see how Israel continued to trust God, how the Jews continued to trust God through Ezra, and how they persisted. In many ways, Ezra is being set up as a character to contrast Josiah in two ways. Number one, Josiah was very much a lone ranger when he came to making decisions. But Ezra was never a lone ranger. He was always soaked in the word of God. What is most interesting about Josiah is that unlike the better kings in 2 Chronicles, he never really consulted anyone when coming to make decisions to fight the Egyptians that later claimed his life. While some of the other better kings would consult the prophets, like King Jehoshaphat would consult Micaiah the prophet before going into battle. King Hezekiah would consult Isaiah, son of Amos, before going into battle. Um, King Josiah very much acted on his own. But not so with the Jews in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 begins with the fulfillment of the words of Jeremiah. Right at the start, the Jews never acted on their own. They always consulted the prophets, started with the prophets. And then when the temple was stopped, uh, was, was the temple project, the building was stopped in Ezra chapter 4, the prophets are again consulted and the prophets again gave encouragement for the people to continue building. And now here in Ezra chapter 7, as soon as they celebrated the Passover, we meet Ezra. The Jews never acted on their own, but now God sends them Ezra to guide them. And what is Ezra like? Look with me in Ezra chapter 7 verse 1. It's very interesting that up to now, we're seven chapters into Ezra. And this is the first time we meet Ezra himself. And what does the book of Ezra say about Ezra? Let's look at verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sheradiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitib, Ahita, the son of Emerah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraah, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. We're told that Ezra had a very long pedigree, 16 generations. This is overdone. No one not even in the Old Testament, receive a 16-generation pedigree that traces Ezra right 16 generations before into to Aaron. Why? Why, is, why does the author spend so much time to show us that Ezra was, in fact, the son of Aaron 16 generations on, uh, um, uh, prior? You see, Aaron in the Old Testament was a priest. In the Old Testament, priests serve two functions. Priests can serve as intermediaries between man and God. But according to Malachi chapter 2 verse 7, priests also have another function. And priests are also teachers of God's word. And this is the primary responsibility of Ezra. He is going to be a teacher of God's word. This is a stark contrast between Ezra and King Josiah. King Josiah always acted. When, when times were tough, he acted on his own, never consulted any prophet. 
just acted alone, went out to attack the Egyptians. But not Ezra. The Bible tells us that Ezra was a man soaked in God's word. His decisions will come. And later we will see when Ezra makes decisions for the people, his decisions are always in consultation with God and His Word. And that's the huge difference. And that's what made faith durable during the times when life takes a turn. A faith that is durable is one that is in consultation with God's will. By our own strength, we will always want to act on our own. It's only God's word that gives us, that compels us to trust Him. And this is what Ezra does. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 tells us, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of God, and to the to teaching His decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra is someone who has always acted, not on his own, but always one who acted in consultation with God's word. He was one devoted, the Bible says, to the study and the observation of the observance of the law of God. Some time ago, I was writing an, uh, an academic article on Ezra. It's been a long time since I've written an academic article for publication. So I was doing my research. I found a few articles that I wanted, but I couldn't locate them. And I noticed that the author of these articles I was looking for was actually a professor here in Australia. So I emailed him whether he could email me the articles that, it, that he had written. I wasn't expecting him to actually email me back. I was just you know, emailing him. And it turned out that he emailed me back and was extremely helpful. When I told this professor that was writing an article for publication, an academic article, he was extremely helpful and happy and even suggested that we should meet. And so I met with him a couple of times and while uh, meeting with me, he, having written academic articles for over 40 years, gave me so much insights that I would not know. He told me about the different things I need to notice that I wouldn't even pay no about writing academic articles, the little quirks and the little ways of quoting using Hebrew and blah, blah, blah. He gave me a lot of tips that I would not have known if I had not consulted with him. Many times when we act on our own, we think we have the answers. We think we are like Josiah, I know how to attack the Egyptians. But it's only when we start to consult God and His words. God's word opens up vestiges, little things that we don't know how to act. That opens up. Once when we come to God's word, that humility and the willingness to be open, to obey God. God opens up treasures treasures and open up our eyes to see these treasures that we would not have known if we were not in consultation with his word. And that's the first difference between the, uh, uh, Ezra and King Josiah. He was someone who was in consultation with God's word. And one when you're in consultation with God, when God opens up wisdom, gives us wisdom to act in ways that we would not have if we were to act on our own. 
But secondly, there is a second difference between Josiah and uh, Ezra. Josiah was someone who was very good at using his own hands. As soon as there was a problem coming, he used his own hands. The Egyptians are passing over our land. I'll use my own hands to attack him and take him down. But not Ezra. Ezra was good, not with his own hands, but he was good in using the hands of God. There is a big, big difference between using our own hands and using God's hands. There are very few people these days that are willing to use the hands of God to do God's work. God's work needs to be done by God's hands. Where do I get that? Where do I get the fact that Ezra used the hands of God? Verse 6, chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. The king had granted everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. The Bible tells us that the, even the Persian king granted Ezra everything he asked for. Why? Not because Ezra was a great talker or persuader. No, no, no. Because Ezra, the hand of the Lord, was on him. Ezra knows how to work God's hands. And this phrase, the hand of the Lord, is going to appear seven times across the next two, in these two chapters of Ezra, chapter 7 and chapter 8. We're going to read of the hand of God working seven times in two short chapters. Why? The secret of Ezra's success was that he was not good with his own hands, but he was good at using God's hands to do God's work. How do we use God's hands when we submit to God? And that's what Ezra, that's what Ezra did. He just simply submitted to God and watched God's hands the book of Ezra starts with God stirring the hearts of, of the king of Persia. But now it advances to God, not only just stirring, but God's hand moving, acting on behalf of his people. Many a times we are we are, we are so doubtful of how God will work that whenever difficult circumstances come, the first thing that comes to our mind is, how should I solve it? Even listening to sermons. I was uh, one time uh, talking to a preacher and one preacher says, you need to give them, uh, the, uh, as you end your sermon, things to do. Why? Because we are pragmatic people. We want to use our hands so much that we would rather use our hands and allow God to use this. 
So in many ways, we're like King Josiah. In order to use our own hands, we tie up God's hands and we use our own hands. And when we use our own hands, we only get what our hands can do and how far our hands can reach. But when we unleash God's hands and use His hands, God's hands is far greater, far stronger, far outreaching than our own hands. And that's what King, that's what Ezra does. He's going to always rely upon God to use his own hands. Psalm chapter 132 verse 2 says, As the eyes of the slaves look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Do we look to the hand of God to work? Do we wait upon God for His hand to work? And when He works, God's hands are so generous. Look at verses, verse seven, verse six here. The king granted everything Ezra asked for. Why? Because the hands of the king of God are far much greater than what our hands can ever accomplished. David Jeremiah in his book, A Life Beyond Amazing, tells of a time when he was invited to speak uh, in another city in the U.S. And he was getting ready to fly from O'Hare Airport in Chicago to this city. While he was waiting in the O'Hare Airport in Chicago, suddenly there was an announcement that came across the entire airport that says that his flight was delayed. So David Jeremiah went into the VIP lounge uh, to wait. While he was waiting, he fixed for himself a cup of coffee. He cut for himself a slice of cake. And he sat in this lounge there eating his cake and drinking his coffee. Later, he walked up to the counter to talk to one of the flight attendants there for an update. And the lady at the counter said, Well, as far as we know, your flight is still delayed. We're in the middle of a huge storm right now. Do you want to have a look at what Chicago looks like in the middle of this storm? So the girl turned on the computer and there was a picture of the city of Chicago engulfed in a storm. Rain was attacking the city like silver darts. Even the sky looked angry with dark, gloomy clouds staring at David Jeremiah. But the good news of it all is that in the middle of this very fierce storm, David Jeremiah was there, safe in the airport lounge, enjoying his cake and his coffee, not even realizing that there was a storm that was surrounding the entire airport. And sometimes that's what it is when we allow God's hand to work. When God takes over the fight, when God attacks the storm for us with his own hands. We're like David Jeremiah. There is a such a sense of peace, such a sense of joy. That when God takes over and fights for us, we can be like David Jeremiah. In the middle of the airport, drinking our coffee, eating our cake, and not even knowing the severity of the fight out there. King Josiah used his own hands and fought the Egyptians 
and that cost him his life. Let's be like the Jews in Ezra and Ezra's time. Let God fight. Let God's hands provide. Let God's hands do the work. And when his hands work, he provided for Ezra everything that Ezra asked for. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you fight for your people. That your hands are much larger and much stronger than ours. You may not give us everything we ask for or desire, but you fight for your people, for your son's glory, and for our ultimate good. So, Father, we pray that you will do the fighting for us. We are sick and tired. Our hearts are wounded when we take the lead. So, Lord God, we come to you and we surrender again to Jesus. Father, let your hands not be tight in our lives. Let your hands be free. Show us again that, Lord God, you are our Savior that we can trust. That when we turn the corner, we can still follow after you because you are our Savior. We rejoice that Jesus is Lord and Savior, not only in the times when times are good, but even when times are bad, even when the Egyptians are around the corner, even though the, the, there is war and fierce storms and we howl upon us and chase after us, Father, we still believe that you are our Lord, you are our Savior. We thank you that through your death and resurrection, you have shown us that your hands are bigger than ours. So, Father, again, we trust our hearts, our lives to Jesus. We pray that you will teach us to be like Ezra, to always live in consultation with your words because your words reveal truths wisdom that we would not have known by ourselves so Lord we pray that you will speak to us this day 